Welcome back to another MarTech Zone interviews on today's show. We have Michelle Elster. Michelle runs Rabin Research, and we're going to be talking about the importance of research uh, for, for everything from content to e-commerce strategy uh, to everything else you're doing in marketing. This is MarTech Interviews, a podcast from DK New Media, publishers of MarTech, the leading publication for sales and marketing professionals to research, discover, and learn how technology is driving business results. Your host is Douglas Carr. Welcome back to MarTech Zone Interviews. On today's show, we have Michelle Elster. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Michelle and I had an incredible conversation, uh, let's see, probably about two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just talking about research. And I think uh, it's one of those fascinating things that uh, being as old as I am and uh, around for as long as I have been, I have the utmost uh, respect and desire that every time I'm getting involved in a marketing project that I go dig up research and research not only just from a consumer standpoint or business standpoint, but even competitor standpoint, uh, because I, I feel like if I do enough research or I get enough information up front the chances of me improving or getting better results on the back end are, are significantly better. And so I know I'm just, I just literally uh, did a sales pitch for you. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for doing that. Um, yeah, yeah that's, that's really the essence of what we do. You know, uh, market research is, is intended to help companies make better informed marketing and other business decisions. You don't want to throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. It makes for a very messy wall and very unappetizing spaghetti. So uh, our goal, of course, is to help companies, you know, make make uh, good decisions and maximize their opportunities while minimizing their risk. That's a, oh, see, you said it better than I did. So you sold yourself better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> and and I utilize research just so people know is um, most of the time that we're working with a client, a client may want um, it, it always they always want a website or an e-commerce site or whatever, but but that's not what they really want, right? What they really want is they want a user experience that's engaging and connecting and uh, converting, you know, prospects and customers. And that's, that's the goal of the technology. And so what I always find spectacular about that is that uh, when I'm taking and segmenting my prospect base, I want to understand how to speak to them. And I want to understand what their motivations are and what their fears are and what their likes are and maybe what their uh, what their other likes are. So, you know, combined audiences with, with other products or services or, or things like that. And, and so that's where research really gives me a leg up is that I'm not starting from zero and then testing and measuring and testing and measuring and testing and measuring. I, I get to, I get to drive, you know, uh, 40% down the street and actually start making a difference right away. Is that what you typically see with your clients? That, that, that was very well said. So um, I would say that um, companies that recognize the value of research um, are able to plan better, execute better, go from zero to 60 in less time, right? And really um, drive their businesses 
very efficiently, right? So like you said, you know, you, you don't want to just guess. You don't want to keep, you know, you don't want to create tests and, and not succeed. You want each of your tests to be as successful as possible, right? Yeah. So, so, and I also always say that the companies that um, have to invest a lot of money in either production or media or creative or distribution or a website, whatever, whatever that investment is, is um, you don't, you don't want to go into something like that without being as knowledgeable as possible. So what research does is it, it helps lay the foundation for whatever it is you're going to be doing with information from the marketplace, not your gut reaction, not what your spouse says they like, right? It's, it's informed decision-making. Yeah. And our gut often tells us the wrong direction to go as well. I feel like I, I, I think I've talked to other people that when I was younger and a marketer, I assumed a lot. I thought I was smarter than I really am. <laughs> and so I made assumptions about buyers and I made assumptions about their motivations. And, it, and the older I get and the more years I get in this business, uh, I don't trust my bias. I tend to push back on it and say, you know what, let me, let me go find research and let, or let's go execute, you know, um, you know, some surveys or, or something where I can get quantitative and qualitative research uh, that fights my bias. Exactly. Well, that's because you, you've lived through it, right? You know, people who get, go into business and they're, and they're young and inexperienced. And, and I, I, I love to hear stories about entrepreneurs, about startups, about, I, I, the more the merrier. We want this economy to continue to grow and prosper and, and have young people who are excited about getting into business. Um, but I think what happens is that when you're really young in business, you do think you know everything or, you know, you know unfortunately that is a problem. Yeah. Um, and that's why so many companies fail because they go into it thinking that they know everything. Those that are skeptical or check themselves at the door, like you, you say you question your gut instincts, those are the companies that really understand how value, how valuable market research can be, right? Because they're saying, okay, I'm not the target audience. I'm the, I'm the CEO, or I'm the biz dev person, or I'm the marketing person. And so we are not our customers, even right. though we may have things in common with our customers, it's very important to understand what the target audience thinks, not what we think. Uh, that's perfectly put. I, and I, on the content side, I see that all the time where I always have to remind myself that some of my readers are at step one and year one of their experience. And so I always have to scale back where I'm at in my journey, because what, where I'm at in my journey is absolutely not the same as where my customers or audience is at. So right. that's, that's, that's very well said. Now, um, for people that aren't familiar with um, hiring a market research company, obviously there's market research, there's primary research, right? Yeah. And that's where I'm going to hire you to actually go collect that information. Uh, and then there's secondary research. Right. And 
secondary research, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to be negative uh, about anything. I, secondary research is better than nothing, I think. Um, but oftentimes secondary research is captured in a way uh, that was for a specific purpose for a company. So let, let's say it's, let's say it's a, a publishing company. You know, they're, they're collecting that research because they want to do a story about that item, but that's not necessarily the same as looking at your audience and doing primary research on them, right? Correct. A hundred percent correct. So, yeah. So, so there is value in secondary research. And whenever you have an opportunity to learn from what other people have done, you should do that as a first step. There may be information that has been published either by the government the Census Bureau, or by other companies that have created and published reports on industries that, that can be extremely valuable in getting the lay of the land, really understanding what's going on in the marketplace, right? But when you have a very specific question about a specific product, about a specific price point, about a specific name, a package, about a set of specific competitors, um, about a specific ad advertising execution. Those are unique situations, right? No one else is gonna have that information for you. You have to create it yourself. And that's one of the reasons why, thank goodness, we're still in business, right? Because <laughs> there are a lot of companies out there that recognize the need for that and know the limitations of what secondary can do for them. Uh, that's, that's, I couldn't agree more. So, so secondary research versus primary. Primary is obviously going to be tailored towards you, your goals, your customers, your audience, uh, your competitors, your products, your services. Um, the other mistake that I often see is the marketer saying, oh, we want to collect research. So the marketer uh, goes and uh, buys a survey tool <laughs> and starts making up questions uh, to capture in a survey. And this is another area where I see that someone without research background, that formalized experience, mm -hmm. um, the way that they're asking the questions or the questions that they're asking often give them the wrong responses, right? Yes. Yes. And it is a problem, especially with so many do-it-yourself tools. Um, out there, everybody thinks that they're a researcher when we know for a fact they're not. And so just because you can, you can give someone a hammer, you give someone a hammer, they can't build a house, right? Because they don't understand, you know, the, the, the requirements for an ar architecture and for all of the things, the engineering that goes into a house, a hammer doesn't make them an expert, right? Just as a, a research tool, does, make, does not make somebody a research expert. We went to school, right? We were trained in the science behind doing research, how to write a questionnaire, how to screen for the right respondents, how not to write a question that is biasing or leading in any way, when to use a closed-ended question versus an open-ended question, um, how many people should be in the survey, how to limit error, you know, the range of error, response bias, all sorts of things that go into the scientific development of a market research study. Now, is there a place for do-it-yourself research? Yes, of course there is. 
but it's not a replacement for a properly designed market research study. Yeah. I, I, I love the, uh, what someone said, said once, like when you ask someone, you know, what frustrates you about this screen yeah. on our application? And, and you're, you're literally putting the idea in someone's head that there has to be a problem with it yeah. that they have to figure out. And so yeah. you're biasing them through the question, right? Yeah, the question can be written in a way that is not biasing, such as, how do you feel about that? Versus, yeah. you know, why do you hate it? <laughs> you know? So yeah, when you, when you start with, I mean, if the more, uh, the more, the more open-ended the question is, the less biasing it is, the better your answers are going to be. Now, there is a place for direct, giving somebody the direction they need to answer the question in a way you want them to, but you have to also give them the opposite side of the coin. So if you ask them about what, if anything, do you dislike about it, you have to give them a chance to talk about what they like about it as well. But you always make the assumption that there may not be anything at all. Right. So the question is worded must include the option for someone to say, wait a minute, I don't have anything that frustrates me or that I dislike about it. And so you have to give people that option. Like I took a survey recently where I, none of those answers applied to me and there wasn't an out. So I, it forced me to answer a, que a question with a scale that didn't fit me. And so I thought that was one of the worst the one of the most poorly worded questions I've ever answered. But what it does is it reinforces the fact how much knowledge is required to write a proper, properly executed market research survey. Um, and then you touched on this a little bit ago, and that's that even once you get a properly written survey, you still throw out certain responses, right? We do. We do. Yeah. And that's yeah, because yeah. there's extremes that you know, you, you have to find what the commonalities are between the answers? That's correct. So, so there are always outliers. People who, you know, open up a questionnaire and start taking a survey and then they go and they bathe their babies and they come back and take it. So the, the length of that interview is going to be very long. Whereas if it was somebody who sat down and took the survey in one sitting, that length of interview is going to be more common, right? Um, it could be that people... Um, give us gibberish in their open-ended answers. Or sometimes we incorporate two questions that are worded differently, but should give us the same answer. We use mm -hmm. that as internal quality checks. We incorporate things that allow us to catch what we call speeders and cheaters. So if somebody's literally going through and clicking C, 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 or number three, 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 just to get through the survey and get 10 cents or a dollar or whatever it is that they want. Yeah. There are ways that we have, we've got little like safety nets built in, or we'll say, okay, in this question, after it's an entire grid of questions, we'll say, okay, click on answer three. Even though that's not a question that we care about, if they don't pass that quality check, that control, we know they're zooming through it, or maybe it's a bot that's trying to take the survey. That is fascinating. <laughs> I never, I, ne I never even thought about that. Yeah. I, I know, I know this is way back. The, I'm, I'm old, so I can share these old, old stories. But I remember uh, when I got out of the Navy, I took an exam for the post office and it was literally like the, f in the directions, it said, you know, circle the logo. And, <laughs> and what they wanted to make sure was that people actually read the instructions. 
yeah. that's like the first point of it. And so that's, that's what that reminded me of. That's, that is, that is really fascinating. Yeah. Well, we've learned the hard way, you know, that there are a lot of people who are doing it with the wrong intention, yeah. right. With the wrong motivation. And so we don't want people, we don't want liars. We don't want people who get through the screening criteria who don't belong in the study. And there have to be tools that we use little, you know, quality assurance checks to make sure that we're getting who we want and that the people who are answering the survey are answering in the most honest way possible. Mm. So we, we have learned, you know, the, the industry has created checks and balances that we all use. Yeah. yeah. That is fascinating. Now, is there, is there, um, I'm curious, uh, sometimes with market research, um, there's obviously questionnaires and surveys that you can do, but there's also in-person or I'm guessing nowadays, you know, over Zoom or, you know, another type of communication software uh, interview type stuff as well, right? So qualitative, so we have two kind of big buckets of research qualitative research and quantitative research. So qualitative research is generally used uh, in um, studies where we're looking to either develop hypotheses, to learn about an industry, to check for red flags in something, to sort of just get a sense of the language people use. Um, and so that qualitative research is executed in lots of different ways. But one of the biggest, uh, most popular ways of doing it is focus groups. People talk about, some, I get somebody who calls me the, just the other day and said, I want to do a focus group. And I'm like, well, what's the objective of the, of the research? You know? And it turned out that what they meant by focus groups was a quantitative survey. Ah, interesting. Focus groups, is one, those are one tool that we use for qualitative research. One-on-one um, -on -one in-depth interviews with with respondents. So let's say I've got a, a business to business study and it's with somebody who's in IT and what they do is very proprietary. They would never sit in a focus group and share that information with other people who are competitive to them. So sometimes a one-on-one -on -one in-depth interview is exactly what we need and not a focus group. Focus groups are good when you're looking for in interaction, uh, conversation, brainstorming, uh, where you want people to feed off of one another, their answers to be to be sort of built upon, sort of to be iterative. That's when a focus group is really good. Um, we've moved to smaller groups uh, because we find that when there's too many people, it's very hard to manage. Right now, my groups are generally between four and six people. Um, if once we get back to in-person groups, that might change again, I don't know. It depends on the objectives. But yes, one-on-one -on -one in-depth interviews and focus groups are tools that we use for qualitative research. And, and even even there, I, I it's going to require a professional to get out of the way, right? To so that you're not again biasing, or you're not letting maybe someone just take over. Uh, there's there's a lot of education and training that you have to make sure that it's managed correctly, right? Well, there is, there is, but again, everybody thinks they can moderate focus groups, and then. You know, it's it's not as simple as it looks. I mean, I went to school for this. Yeah. I learned how to do it. I learned how um, to manage difficult respondents. Um, again, how to write questions for the discussion guide that are not leading. Um, how to get at different kinds of issues. How to handle sensitive topics. Um, how to um, and and how to manage a back room. So, for example, 
when we're doing a Zoom focus group, I have people who are in my virtual back room and in the virtual back room. So they're not shown on the screen, but they're sending me questions. Ah, interesting. In the focus group, they're sending me saying, well, ask, you know, Sam, Sam said he likes the color green. What is it about green that he likes? Yeah. You know, if I hadn't thought of that myself and that was something they cared about. They'd be able to ask me to ask the question or tell me to ask the question. So now I'm like juggling a front room and a back room. <laughs> it's not as simple as it looks. Trust no, me. No, I bet. I, I, I well, I, and my only experience in this was as a product manager. Mm-hmm. Um, we deployed research, you know, teams all the time and focus groups all the time, and it, and and that's where I can draw the analogies because my experience, but. That's where we saw, sometimes we saw an overwhelming client that absolutely wanted this feature. And, Mm -hmm. and then, and then maybe that client was an important client that was spending a lot of money. So then leadership and sales and everybody else was pressuring us that that was the right solution. Uh, But, but when we actually deployed research and we identified, you know, okay, well, what, you know, what percentage of our uh, prospects and what percentage of our customers would this feature impact? Well, yes. then it was minuscule, you know, and it was something where, no, we had other priorities that were far more important. And had we not utilized focus groups and not utilized professionals, you know, to, to carry them out, we would have gone down the wrong route. You know, right. there's, there's no doubt. So that, that's, that's interesting. Can you, uh, do you, do you have a couple of examples where you can share, you know, maybe maybe we can start with quantitative research, uh, where it really just made a profound difference in in the way the uh, company was moving, and then we can do the qualitative as well. Yeah. So uh, for quant, I I mean I can't name names. Everything right. I usually sign um, confidentiality agreements, right? So um, one of my clients was a music venue. And one of their goals was to ensure that the people who were attending the concerts represented the the, um, racial and ethnic mix of the city. Mm. And so they had us uh, conduct an online survey in the metro area to learn about what that population would want if they were to attend a concert in person. And that means what types of music would they be interested in? Would they be interested? What type of um, food would they expect to be be able to buy? Um, like for example, one of the groups we talked to was a Hispanic population, and they wanted um, Mexican street food. Yeah, yeah. Which which was not currently being served. So right. how do I help my client figure out how to serve that up for them on a special case? So you know they might bring in food trucks or something like that. Right. So, um, yeah, yeah. And then also, what are their perceptions of the different music venues around that city, right? And why do they like one over the other? What is it that makes that a favorite? Is it the atmosphere? Is it the seating? Is it the lighting? Is it the sound system? Is it the way they're treated at the door? Is it the cost of the ticket? Is it the type of of artist that's being served up? So there were a million questions. <laughs> and, wow. and so, yeah, I mean, there was so, it was such an interesting study. And what the information that we were able to determine from the research, from the quantitative research, was that they, um, they knew exactly what kind of artists they had to present. Um, they understood what days of the week they should conduct, they should offer these concerts. 
They understood how far people were willing to come and what, met, what modes of transportation they were going to use. They figured out, a, it, I mean, everything they needed to package a perfect concert experience for these populations. And guess what? It's working. <laughs> That's incredible. Wow. Yeah. I think the uh, I think the, here in Indianapolis we just had a national scandal <laughs> with a museum, <laughs> and uh, and it was a lack of diversity and a a blatant lack of diversity. Um, it was actually a decided lack of diversity in the way that they were approaching customers. They could have used your help here. <laughs> I'm here. What can I say? Yeah. Well, and and I I mean I mean with respect to that, I love that example because. Uh, companies are struggling with that right now. Companies are struggling with, you know, we want to be viewed by our communities as inclusive. And so that, that I think is just an absolutely perfect example where market research could really, you know, help the culture of your organization, you know, attract new audiences and attract audiences that you, 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 you know, you hadn't even given second thought to you before. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, so that's, that's a great, that is a fantastic example of a consumer side and, and qualitative. That was quantitative. Sorry. Um, how about let's, let's, let's go the opposite, like a, a B2B. Do you, do you handle B2B clients as well? Yeah, Tons of them. Tons of them. So today I was actually, um, I was teaching a class uh, for a university and I, and this was quant also. So they had uh, the, the particular class I was teaching was related to international marketing, right? So I gave them a perfect example of an international marketing survey that we conducted in the US, UK, Germany, and Asia. And um, it was one of the most complex, and it was B2B, um, and the client provided the lists and we conducted the survey among their current customers, prospects, their suppliers, and their employees. Wow. And it was, and it was, in four different countries. And um, it was it was brilliant. I mean, I, look, I, sh- I should say it was a great survey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it gave them, I thought it was great. They loved it. I, it gave them everything they needed to know. So essentially what we were trying to do is understand awareness and perceptions of the client company versus the competitors in the marketplace. And we were able to in, I mean, it took a lot of time. And of course it was quite expensive because it was all the languages sure. that translated into, but um, it was, it was so well received. We were able to, to use correspondence analysis, which is a multivariate technique to develop perceptual maps to show how in each country, each brand was associated with different characteristics. So the map showed the entire marketplace of competitors and where their strengths and weaknesses lie. So what are they most closely associated with and what are they not associated with? And where is their white space in the market for a competitor to come in? So it was really, it was a great study. We analyzed each audience country by country and then in total. And the, the client loved the work we did. And we, we you know, it was, it was one of the, the biggest, I would say biggest in terms of financial, you know, money, but it was also big in terms of kind of the, the breadth and depth of the information we developed. It's something that I, I find, uh, you know, just working in the United States, we're a little bit ignorant as well, <laughs> where, where you probably had to be really careful culturally on how you asked and positioned questions as well, right? 
Absolutely. It's so challenging. And so we're very, very careful about working with people who have boots on the ground in each country, locals who interpret, help us interpret. I'm so sorry. That's okay. Um, help us interpret um, the questions, make sure that the translations are done properly. We use what they call back translation. So it's interpreted forward. So we translate into the language and then we have a second person read the language and translate back into English to make sure it's properly um, done. Wow. And then we also use localization. So somebody who is from the country, a local, checks to make sure there's nothing that we're saying or asking that could be taken wrong or misinterpreted or insulting in any way. So you, you read about these blunders that are, that are yeah. you know, there have been so many made, you, you would think that, oh my goodness, how could they not have gotten the message and understood that and made the changes necessary? But companies continue to do it. They make ridiculous mistakes. Yeah. Well, and, and simple ones too. I, uh, I'm doing training uh, for a company in Switzerland here soon. And in our review of the presentation and the speech and everything else, uh, I had a couple of, you know, American analogies that yeah. just didn't, they don't make sense. They don't uh, translate. <laughs> yeah, they don't translate. It, it would be, you know, just, uh, just, you know, some of the terminology that we utilize uh, is, is going to go wrong. That's, I mean, that's, that's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, even so much as between the U.S. and U.K., this is correct. This cracks me up, right? So think about all the, the Queen's English right? Okay. Differences in the words. I mean, I've seen these uh, glossaries that show like the trunk of a car is called the boot, right. a boot called something else. You know, it's like you have to have somebody who understands the nuances of the language, right? Um, to make sure that it's written in terminology that makes sense to them. And don't forget about currency. I mean, currency is huge. You know, I had a questionnaire given to me all in US dollars and they wanted me to, to, um, conduct the survey in four different countries. I'm like, it's gotta be translated into local currency. Right. dollars. So yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. A lot of considerations, yeah. Wow. And 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 uh, I mean, obviously you can't talk, but how were they going to utilize that data moving forward? Was it like a segmented kind of marketing strategies for each region? So, so you're talking about the, the B2B company? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so what they were doing was they were creating a campaign, an ad campaign for the marketplace to help position the client company in the marketplace in a unique and innovative way to drum up business, right, to, to increase business. Yeah. We were using the um, information in, as a tracking study. So we were going to repeat the study every year or every two years to see how well the campaign was moving the needle on the key measures, on awareness, on attitudes on perceptions and how um, how well the brand is doing relative to the competitors and relative to the benchmarks that they set. Wow, what a fantastic, I, ooh, that just gave me goosebumps. I'm, I'm, geek, I'm geeking out on the market research. <laughs> I was say, we're such geeks. <laughs> uh, well, well, it's one of those things I think that uh, if you're on, especially on the digital side of the spectrum, you know, you expect to always, you know, be identifying clicks or opens or, you know, right. some, some tangible activity. And, and a lot of people on my side of the aisle there can't translate something like awareness, you right. know, and, and connect the dots between that. And so a lot of times they dismiss it. Well, I was just in a conversation with someone today where he was discussing vanity metrics, you know, that, that in digital, 
if you can't align the metric with actual dollars, you often assume that it's a vanity metric, that it doesn't matter. Whereas what you're talking about is with that market research, you can absolutely translate that significantly, you know, over time to, from a, you know, I won't call it a vanity metric because it's not, but something like awareness or, or attitude towards a company or whether you like the company or not, you know, any of those things that we think are, are subjective. Now you can actually take quantitative research, right. And align it to your sales and align it to your market share. And I think, you know, when, when, um, marketers still talk about the funnel, right? The sales yeah. funnel. And if you think about the top of the funnel and right, so the top of the funnel is where you start building awareness and consideration. And right. you start thinking about the attitudes, how positive, are, positively are people thinking about your brand, right? All those things at the top of the funnel are, can't be dismissed because you can never make it to the bottom of the funnel if the, if the, if the constructs at the top of the funnel aren't solid. Exactly. How do you fill the funnel at the top, right? You have to have strong awareness, attitudes, and yeah. consideration. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that is perfect. Well, uh, Michelle, what kind of customers do you do you enjoy working with? I enjoy working with business to business, business to consumer. I lo- enjoy working with domestic, global, packaged goods, um, health, um, tech. We have clients, I mean, we're a 58-year-old company. Wow. I'm a second-generation owner. My, the company was started by my father in 1963. So this is a, this company, I mean, we have so much experience. I, I mean, I, I, it's hard to find a category we haven't worked in, to be honest. I couldn't imagine so, you coming home as a teenager and trying to trick your father. <laughs> what? <laughs> There was no trickery in my house. Well, fantastic, Michelle. Uh, uh, This was a conversation that we needed to have for quite some time with my podcast. And uh, we will put in the show notes how people can get a hold of you, Raven Research. So R-A-B-I-N research.com. And and, uh, you've just been extremely helpful. I've actually uh, talked to you about a couple of projects that we're doing. And so hoping to, to work with you in the near future. But thanks so much for taking the time today. Well, thank you. It was such a pleasure. And I hope somebody can learn something today. You know, I hope that uh, that something we share today is going to make that light bulb go off and they're going to realize the value of what we're doing. Subscribe at martech.zone. Sponsorships and marketing services are available through dknewmedia.com.